everybody, and welcome to Dentistry Unmasked. I'm Pam Maragliano Muniz, and with me, as always, David Rice. David, how are you? Pam, I am great. Super psyched for today. We might know a guy who knows a thing or two that most dentists don't know. I don't know. I think we know a guy. So welcome, Dr. Brian Novi. I'm so mm -hmm. thrilled to have you here with us. Thank you. I'm a guy. I'm I'm that guy. Yeah, that, that guy. guy. Or do you have another guest? No, no. this is it. Wow. Just, we need a guy. It's it's fun to say that I got, I got a guy. I got a yeah. guy. Bob so, Sacalano's father, right? <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. We've known each other for a long time. We've been friends for a long time. I always say that you're one of like a very, very elite few that have been to both my weddings. And it's interesting because we became friends before I actually heard you lecture. And one of my favorite intros I've ever witnessed as an attendee for CE was yours. And I remember as you were being introduced, like normally it's very common. It's like CE and you're listening to a bio and you're like kind of take a nap for 30 seconds and then the lecture starts. Your lecture started differently. And it was ever hear four out of five dentists agree? And did you ever wonder who's that one guy? Like who's the guy that doesn't agree with the four out of the five dentists? And that's you. You're that guy on a number of topics, more than I even realized. So let's talk about some things that are accepted in dentistry, but really have no foundation really behind them. Like accepted, but unacceptable. Yes. Like uncomfortable that we're comfortable with? Yes. Yes. Okay. I, you're, you're scaring me because uh, you said this is unscripted. And even though we spent a dinner together planning for this, I, we never <laughs> did discuss what we were going to talk about because I lost my phone. So then the whole, that whole evening. Wow. Okay. So for, for the audience, just so you know, this is completely unscripted. I don't really know what they're going to ask me. I thought we were going to talk about Pontics. We could. We could talk about you, Dr. Margaliano Moniz. What is the best Pontic material of choice? But that's we're not so okay. And I'm not. I'm not the. I've been. I've been pointed out. I'm not the fifth dentist. The fifth dentist is someone else. I'm. I'm the at all dentist. I'm one of the at alls. <laughs> that's fair. That is fair. All, all right. So all. let's start here. Like okay. one thing that I that kind of is so strange to me is that. For example, biofilm research dates back to the 70s, right? And 1870s? we know, well, I think 1970s, but it could oh, okay, be, okay. it could be longer okay. than biofilm. that. Biofilm, true biofilm, like dental reasons. biofilm, that kind of thing. Biofilm, okay. Yes. Okay. Like I'm taking us back, like Jan Lindy, 1979 kind of story, okay. where we I'm know that awesome. biofilm will mature and cause significant inflammation in about three months. And this is something that's been stated in literature for decades now. Yet this one toothpaste commercial in the 50s said, go see your dentist twice a year. And we've made this six month profi like gospel, like it's like accepted among people, dentists, hygienists, like across the board when we're not even getting people healthier every six months. So I want to hear some things from you. So for example, you've been kind of labeled maybe as somebody who doesn't get that excited about fluoride. Let's talk about why that might be the case. Whoa, 
Well, you were, it, you, I was going along with you there. I was, I was in lockstep with you. I felt like we were in a state of flow there. And I was thinking, this is going to be easy. We're just going to talk about biofilm and how we went so wrong about 50 years ago and started chasing the wrong thing. And I'm thinking in my head about the latest research I just read about the biofilm actually grows into this animal that like crawls over the teeth. That's what the, was described at the that's what we were talking about um, at the Canadian Academy of Pediatric Dentistry a while back. And then out of left field there, Dr. Margaretta Mooney's and um, Dr. David Rice, I'm going to hold you responsible for where she went with that. Then she said, oh, but you, you have a reputation for being, and she didn't say anti-fluoride. She said it in a very nice way. And um, I'm so upset right now. I don't even remember what the question was because you, you, you just, you just. You came out of left field with a sucker punch there. I'm not anti-fluoride. How can I be anti-fluoride? I'm pro-glass ionomer. You can't have, you can't be pro-glass ionomer and anti-fluoride. But okay, so there I've defended myself. Now, what was your question? Why? <laughs> Why am I anti-fluoride? I'm not. I'm no, not you're not anti-fluoride, but you've been known to not rely on fluoride the same way as, say, the dental community. Okay, so here's, here's you want to know why? You want to know why? Page one of the Journal of Dental Research in 2015. Page one, page one of the Journal of Dental Research in 2015. And ask yourself, does the editor of the Journal of Dental Research put thought into what paper is going to go on page one? I mean, like ask yourself. So you open up the first journal of the year in 2015. What do you find on page one? Have I made the point clear? It's on page one. In the abstract on page one, it says, and I quote, in the presence of biofilm, sodium fluoride application resulted in net demineralization. In contrast, nanohydroxyapatite induced remineralization and the presence of biofilm enhanced the effect. So that was the statement for me that really started, because I remember writing the paper back in dental school with Evan and Doug. Uh, we wrote a paper on uh, occult caries my first year in dental school. And we had to write it. It was a the first group project in dental school. And we wrote a paper on occult caries. And the last mention of occult caries, I remember when we did that literature review, was in 1995, where they talked about what happens when you over-misuse fluoride. And I remember being taught the harebrained idea that plaque can be a reservoir for fluoride. You want to get me worked up into a lather? Start spewing that bull honky that plaque can be a reservoir for fluoride. I understand that, that plaque can be a reservoir for a low level of fluoride and it, it can shift this demon remen balance if you have a very low dose of fluoride in the plaque and then the pH is just right. Sure, you want the pH to be slightly acidic so you're creating fluorapatite and you're drive, you're removing calcium from the tooth surface or excuse me, the hydroxyl groups from the hydroxyapatite crystal and replace it with the fluoride ion. And I'm sorry, Dr. Rice, for getting a little too inorganic chemistry because I see your eyes glazing over there. But you do need that sort of Riemann-Demon balance and the Henderson-Hasselbach equation going back and forth on the tooth surface, right? To create that fluorapatite. But a many of us, no, I'm not going to say us because I'm not guilty of this anymore. But there are many clinicians out, out there who I'm going to say allow their teams to willy-nilly do a very quick profi and just you know, get the teeth cursory clean and then coat the teeth in a high concentration of fluoride varnish. And when you combine fluoride varnish with plaque, you have to ask yourself, if that plaque is acidic, we were all taught in dental school, acidic plaque takes fluoride, turns it into HF, transports it across this, the cell membrane of the, of the bacteria in the, in the biofilm. Those two ions disassociate from each other. The fluoride interrupts the enolase enzyme and the glycolytic pathway, so it shuts down glycolysis in the bacteria. And now you have this little extra proton hanging out in the cytoplasm of the bacteria, and that acidifies the inside of the cell. So now you've, now you've ruined the isoelectric point 
for all of all of the metabolic pathways inside that bacteria. And you kill, and or if you don't kill it, you make this thing fail to thrive. So in dental school, we're taught fluoride crosses cell membranes as HF. But no one in class ever stopped to go, wait a second, isn't HF hydrofluoric acid? In what universe do I want to put hydrofluoric acid on a tooth? And yet we understand from a microbiological standpoint, that's what happens when you give bacteria fluoride, especially if they're aciduric acidogenic bacteria. It turns that fluoride into hydrofluoric acid, which is exactly what has to do in order for it to cross the cell membrane. But we, no one ever stops to say, well, then what happens when that bacteria is dead? What happens? Those, high, those protons in the fluoride don't ever get together again? Well, in 1995, we we knew this was happening. It was published in the literature. This is what happens when you put the high-dose fluoride on teeth that aren't clean. You get this phenomenon called occult caries or hidden caries or fluoride caries. And every clinician has seen it. It's where you cut into a tooth thinking you're going to do a sealant. You drop into this groove, and now all of a sudden you're doing a pulpotomy or or worse, a pulpectomy. Wait, are those worse than one of worse than the other, right? I don't know. I'm not a <laughs> dentist. So, um. Or you're going, what the hell? I thought I was, excuse me, can I say that here? Yeah, sure. Thinking, what the heck? What the heck? I thought we were going to do a sealant here. I thought I came in here just to do a little fissurotomy. And now I'm thinking, oh my gosh, is this kid, do we need to do a stainless steel crown? That's occult carries. That's what happens when you don't get the grooves clean. And someone who's not thinking and who's trying to go way too fast in practice because they're being driven by, I'm going to say, a wrong incentive model. And Pam, you know how I feel about this because we talked about this in the car the other night. And by the way, I changed that in the paper. Um... You're welcome. Thank you very much for that feedback. <laughs> um, we, we as doctors in the practice, as leaders of the healthcare team, push the incentive to get the more procedures done instead of asking ourselves, is the patient getting healthier because of what I'm doing? Did I get the teeth clean and then provide a true preventive service, which is the prophylaxis, which is the preventing of disease? And I would say we should really get rid of the term preventing disease. And instead, let's just make patients healthier, do something to make them healthier, which is why I'm so against Carrie's risk assessment. But maybe we're getting already off topic. With the, did I answer your question about fluoride? I'm not anti-fluoride. I'm anti the misuse of high dose of fluoride. And I'm going to quote JADA. There's a paper by um, Garcia and Godoy on the uh, on fluoride concentration in the mouth. And if you look at what it says in JADA, JADA says only a minute fluoride concentration is needed to initiate and maintain the remineralization process. And what is a minute concentration? It's not one part per million. It's 0 0.03 to 0.08 parts per million. Now, I talked to a fluoride chemist, fluoride guru, chemist guy who really understands fluoride dynamics. And let me just be clear. I am not that guy. Okay. I'm not that guy. <laughs> but um, he explained to me, and I had never heard this before. And Pam, this is why I was late. This is why you were late getting home the other night was because this guy was talking my ear off about fluoride. I'm like, you got to shut up with the, with the fluoride numbers. I can't, I can't. Um, but he was saying that actually the dose of fluoride that is actually put in the mouth by the time it interacts with saliva and biofilm and all the other stuff, all the other biochemical and inorganic chemistry that's going on in the mouth, you're actually only getting one-tenth the dose. Now, I've never heard that before, but I find that very intriguing because that that's kind of makes sense when you talk about one part per million in water works so well, and yet it trickles down into a, a scientific standpoint, 0 0.03 to 0.08 parts per million, which is about one-tenth, right? So... Um, I think it's pretty interesting that thought, but I've never I've never heard that before. And I gotta go, I have to go look at that. But which makes me question, well, what's happening to the other 22,000 parts per million that are in that fluoride varnish that we're using? And so what I take away from that page one of the Journal of Dental Research 2015 is that, and what everyone should take away, and what the authors want you to take away from that paper is we really need to second guess 
the fluoride dynamics that we have been um, not brainwashed to believe, but the fluoride dynamics that we've been taught simply because we are trying to back ourselves up and defend the, the safe use of this anion, right? Which I think we should have chased a different ion instead of fluoride, but we didn't. Well, the military did, but the general public did not. We can talk about that if you want. I don't know if you want to talk about that. But um, the the idea of that 2015 paper in the Journal of Dental Research is that when it's the problem is when you just apply sodium fluoride to the tooth and then the presence of biofilm. There isn't a problem when you apply fluoride, calcium, and phosphate. And this is what really irks me about karyology. We, and when I say we, I mean the oral healthcare community at the very highest levels of science, and I'm going to put the ADA there. We want to argue and say in the day and age of evidence-based clinical practice, there's no evidence that calcium and phosphate have anything to do with tooth decay. Well, bull crap. Come on, seriously. We all know that the tooth is losing calcium and phosphate, but then you have no randomized controlled trial that shows it. And But people like me and Pam and, and Dr. Rice, I don't know where you fall on the, on the spectrum of what preventive agents you use in your practice if you believe in calcium phosphate technology. But I have documented cases in the peer-reviewed literature, thank you to Rella Christensen for challenging me to do it, documented cases showing when you remineralize teeth with calcium and phosphate, it works. I've got a, I've got a six-year-old who's now a 16-year-old who's been healthy ever since. And he got a lot of calcium phosphate chemistry. Some would say he got a little too much fluoride because he's got fluorosis on his teeth, but it's not bad looking fluorosis. I think it's spectacular looking fluorosis. And many people say, well, I don't want any fluorosis at all. And I'm thinking, really, you don't want any fluid at all? I would love, me, myself, I would love to have a little bit of fluorosis. I would. I'm sorry, We did I get off on a tangent there? I went, no. you, you got me down a rabbit hole. I like rabbit holes. I like a few things there because I, you know, and this ties to conversations we've had in the past about social media. And I think the thing that I've seen in dentistry over the last, especially five to seven years is we dumb things down way too much. And there's a whole like army of humans out there who like to beat up dental school, beat up literature, talk about, we don't need to learn the Krebs cycle um, as a, as a joke, which is pathetic because, you know, all I remember from this conversation is lathering. I was terrible in inorganic chemistry, but somehow got through, but Henderson Hasselbeck actually has merit. And turns out like, if we're going to deliver great care, then we can't look at convenience over literature driven care. We have to have it. I love what you, I I really like that. That's, I mean, we talked about this at dinner the other night when we're supposed to be figuring out what we're going to talk about here. And clearly you were taking notes and I wasn't because for those of you who don't know, I lost my cell phone. At during that on the way to that dinner, realized it at dinner. So my head went somewhere completely different when these two wanted to talk about what are we going to talk about on the podcast? I'm like, forget about the darn podcast. Where's the phone? <laughs> it's all about the phone. But JDR um, 2015, page one, you got that. My I did. It doesn't work that way. I wish I could remember dates like that. But no, I, I love what you're saying. We, I mean, I think we hide behind evidence-based clinical decision-making right now. We hide behind and say, well, the systematic reviews don't tell me to do that. Well, you know what? You got two other you got two other pillars of the evidence-based triad: the clinician's experience and the patient's needs and wants. And I can't think of any patient that doesn't want their dentist to try harder to not drill their tooth and to say, "Oh, if you if there's something you can do that doesn't involve a drill that I can reverse this cavity using chemistry, I think I would like to try that." What patient says, "No, I don't want to do that. I really want you to give me the shot." Well, actually, I can think of one patient who would say that. Go. <laughs> No, I want the shot. Just that one. There's only one. There's only one. Um, There's always got to be one. <laughs> they're a fun patient, though, aren't they? But kind of, 
understandable. Yeah, they like us. They keep coming back for the they torture, do. which we go. secretly somehow like. I don't know. Well, that, that leads me to landfill trip. <laughs> we can't get into brands like Seinfeld. Pontics, Pam. <laughs> Pam, get us back on track here. So, okay. I think you've given us a lot to think about. And Done. what do we do? Do we do a better job removing biofilm before placing a fluoride varnish application? Or do we consider different products and, you know, as far as, you know, or different materials or different chemistries to help to keep our patient, get our patients healthy and then keep them healthy? I think you can go either direction. And I think we make karyology too difficult. And granted, I'm guilty of this myself because early on during the Canberra movement, I think there were people wanted to hang, wanted to be able to hang their hats on like a Canberra protocol. And I think it's funny as I travel around, people go, I'm using the Canberra form and following the Canberra protocol. And like, there is no Canberra form. There is no Canberra protocol. Um, I mean, there are things that are close that people say that, but Canberra's never come out and say, says, this is our protocol. This is our carries risk assessment form. And I know the folks at Canberra well, and they don't, they don't force a form. They don't force a protocol. It's all about identifying why the patient is getting the disease. And we all know how to do that, but we seem to think that you need a form to do it. And I don't think, I don't want anyone to use a form when you do a carries risk assessment, except in school to learn what you need to find, go find, but get rid of that form as fast as you possibly can. And make it all about identifying what are the risk factors that you can actually modify. And Pam, to your point, two very easily, mod I think the easiest things to modify are, can we clean the teeth better? And so we have CDT codes for, I taught the patient how to brush their teeth better. Although many of us would say, giving the patient a toothbrush is the same thing as oral hygiene instruction. And Pam, we've talked about this. I I I hate profies. I've always hated profies. Um, I... I remember disclosing a patient's teeth and using a profi cup and trying to clean everything off. Think, well, this is a beard. I'll, I'll know when I'm done. Only to find out there are dimples in the tooth surface that nothing comes out of. You got margins of restorations, which you just scrubbed that stuff and smashed it down into those margins, um, which are open anyway. And you didn't get underneath the gum line. And if you did, and if you didn't get underneath the gums, you abraded the gingiva on top. So the attached gingiva is now abraded. Um, and people are thinking, well, then you're not doing the careful job. I'm like, well, who, who really does a careful polish? I don't know of anyone who really does a careful, meticulous polish. Um, so I started brushing my patient's teeth with a special gel, which breaks down the biofilm to get their teeth really clean in the office. So they feel that difference from me brushing their teeth. And they also know that's the way I want it to feel when you're at home. Even if you don't, it doesn't feel like that all the time. But if you get that, that feeling of, because my patients say, my gosh, it feels like that brush is spinning, but I don't see you actually spinning in your fingers. How are you doing that? Well, that's the way a small circle is supposed to feel if you do it correctly. And it's okay if you're not, I didn't realize what a small circle is supposed to feel like. And I guarantee you, neither one of you did either until you were assaulted and to properly how to brush your teeth with, I don't know, Dr. Rice, were you taught the modified bass technique? You were probably taught the Robbins technique back when you were in school. I mean, that was- No, modified bass, like circa 1990s, early 90s. Okay. So you were, we are, we, we all come from the same place then. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't believe in the modified bass technique. It's just not right. I myself prefer a 48 degree angle. It's not 45. It needs to be deeper than that. But that's, but we see where we harp on these details and say, no, you have to use the modified bass technique. Do you, do you, how about you just clean your teeth a little bit better, a little bit more meticulously. I, I ask my patients, if you can just give me eight minutes at night in the bathroom before you go to bed, you don't have to brush your teeth any other time of day. 
and we can, I can keep you healthy. Now, I don't really think I want eight minutes at night and I don't think it's realistic, but I make my patient think that right from the get-go that, well, eight minutes a night, I don't think I can do that. Okay, well then you're already set up for failure. So can you give me four minutes a night? Can you give me brushing two minutes and then flossing and then a really quick brush one more time? Maybe you can't do that. But so Pam, to your point, your question was, so what do we do? Get the teeth cleaner? Yeah, you could. Um, they, so patients spend more time brushing their teeth. I don't think they're going to do that um, until they until they convert, right? There's that moment that patients convert from the oral health enemy to the oral health ally where they start going, actually, I can't not floss anymore. Like now you've got me to a point where I just think about the stuff that's growing on my teeth when I go to bed and I have to go into the bathroom and remove it. And we've had those patients and those, those are the fun ones, right? We're like, oh my gosh, like, I wonder what it was that made this patient like flip all of a sudden. And it's, I think when they get out of pain and too often, I, I talked about this when we were all in Quebec together in my lectures, we harp on patients who have gingivitis and periodontal disease, but you better start brushing better and get in there and get all these little nicks and crannies. What patient after they've just had scaling and root planing is going to go in there and brush aggressively? They're not. And I think we need, and I don't care how soft that toothbrush is. If you're not giving that patient an ultra soft toothbrush, like a velvet toothbrush, or an ultra suave post-surgery, you know, surgical brush or something. If you're not giving that brush to the patient to turn them on to toothbrushing so they don't have pain and tenderness when they brush, what hope do we have for them to actually continue the brushing habit and develop these really good home techniques that keep them healthy? So I think we can't, and, and to your, again, answering your question, Pam, we, you could, if patients aren't going to clean their teeth really, really well and be meticulous, well, then we have therapeutics that we can give them that, well, if you're not going to get everything off your teeth, at least put this in there so that the biofilm that is left has things like some excess protein and excess calcium and excess phosphate so that it buffers that plaque acid, which is inevitably going to be created. So you either get the teeth squeaky clean, which is difficult to do. Although I will say that there are some, I mean, there are some really cool tricks. I mean, have your patient suck on clove candy or cinnamon candy, and you will keep their mouth a heck of a lot cleaner because those two candies with cinnamon oil and with clove oil in them, and I would imagine even cardamom candy, um, they have natural antibacterial compounds in there. And you notice that patients develop less biofilm when they consume that candy, when they suck on that hard candy. So I think we have to be very nimble, very flexible with our patients to say, I've got lots of ways to get you over this initial hurdle of your, we need to get you healthier, but it's going to take, we got to get over this hump of, of dis-ease to get into a state of homeostasis. And in order to get over that hump, maybe the patient is going to leave your office and start brushing 10 minutes for the next month until they really develop good brushing habits. Probably not. But after coming back for a couple of restorative appointments and having me have, having them feel how I brush their teeth um, and talking to them about, so, you know, what did you try? What did, you know, what did you switch up from last time? And just building on those small little successes instead of trying to change everything all at once, because my gosh, if there's anything I've learned, the patients who fall flat on their face, it's when we, we try to, we try to overdo it. The patients who succeed are the ones where I start with, can you just brush right here? Just brush right here. Like, Nobody can I have a special toothpaste? No, you're not ready for a special toothpaste. Just show me you can brush right here first. And then celebrate that success that wow, it looks like you're really doing a good job brushing. Would you would you mind trying a different toothpaste? Or would you try would you can you try leaving the toothpaste foam in your mouth a little bit longer and spitting all the excess out, but not but leaving some residue in there? Um, and then start magnifying those little tiny changes instead of giving the patient an, an electric toothbrush, which I think is great. But I think you got to get the patient to that place of brushing their teeth really well first, because I've seen patients who you give them a, you give them a, 
they get gung-ho like well wouldn't a power toothbrush be better yes it would i have no doubt it would be better but not right now for you and i find that when you when you withhold it from the patient you say not right now they want to try harder to get that thing that you're withholding from you're dangling the carrot and my carrot is an electric toothbrush and many of us are like no i want to give it to them now they can benefit no they can't benefit from it they don't even have to use a regular toothbrush yet i'm sorry anyway that's what i'm thinking so many good things and you know what's really kind of sad we only have a couple of minutes left and I was wondering if you could, in like a lightning round, talk about the magic of glass ionomer, which you mentioned earlier, and other minerals that will help to prevent caries. The magic? Well, that doesn't sound very evidence-based when you use the M word. Evidence-based clinical decision-making is not magic. I never called myself an evidence-based dentist. I like magic. I do too. We were talking about how I want to incorporate it in my lectures moving moving forward, but it's very difficult. I don't want to screw up a magic trick in front of a big audience. Wouldn't that suck? Like, like, oh, it was a good lecture, but he screwed up the magic. But we're not here to talk about that. You want to have your lightning round about glass ionomer. Well, you know I love glass ionomer. I love glass ionomer. I love glass ionomer because it chemically fuses to the tooth and you have a true ion exchange. What I find is that glass ionomer itself burns people. And when I say it burns people, you and I talk about this, Pam. You, even you struggle with, yeah, I know this is a great material that can resist recurrent decay and has a wonderful coefficient of thermal expansion, but I don't want to use a product that doesn't have an acceptable longevity in the patient's mouth. And if it's going to dissolve away, what does that say about my clinical technique if my glass onward is dissolving away? So I think the magic of glass onward comes from, as we started this, being Un, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And glass armor has a learning curve. You have to, when you polish this, I mean, my assistant, my assistants know I'm going to scream at you if you blow air on me or if you suction while I'm, while I'm contouring my glass armor. I'm all, even my patients know the cardinal sin of working with glass armor is don't dry it out. All of my patients even know that. If I say, what's the card? I, Cause I ask Megan each time, Megan, what's the cardinal sin of working this with sterile? Don't dry it out. I know you can't, not allowed to suction while you're working. I'm like, exactly. So get the heck away from me with your suction. You can't dry it out and you have to coat them. And everyone in my lectures hears, I'm, Pam, you've heard me say this because I had research students who found out that you couldn't move fluoride. And Dr. Rice, you don't know this, but I had research students over like almost 15 years ago, Danny and Elijah, who taught me that we couldn't move, we can't move fluoride through composite. So if you coat your glass ionomer in a composite coating agent, which I absolutely think you need to do, because that's what prevents the degradation, that lack of retention event that everyone freaks out about, um, which I don't nearly see with the same frequency other clinicians do because they don't coat their restorations the way I do. So if you coat them, you don't see that lack of retention event. And Pam, you've seen my, I mean, I, and I will, you've seen my highest risk patients who I then referred to you because she lost her dental benefits in my office. So I sent her to see you. And I will admit, I would, I mean, I sent her to you because I was like, oh, the only person who can help her is Pam. And you saw my work and I'm sure you're like, Brian, what were you thinking? I'm like, I know it's glass armor in there, Pam. <laughs> but if you take an explore and you poke into that, it's hard and it's firm. And Pam, Dave, you don't know this, excuse me, Dr. Rice. Um, you <laughs> don't know this, but Pam called me and said, you better come here to this office and you better, you better register this practice location with the state of Massachusetts because you're going to, you better keep taking care of her. I don't want to inherit this. Your glass ionomer is having lack of retention events. I'm like, well, yes, the woman is on like 28 medication and do or xerostomia inducing medication. She's got lupus. And I mean, she's got her health history is like an encyclopedia. The poor woman is just her poor mouth. And Pam, we've talked about it. she is one of those patients who no, we are going to lose everything, but it's, but we're, we're going to lose it slowly. And Pam and I have talked, I, you're not going to save every patient. And now, and I, and it took me a little while to get to that, get to that place. But 
But patients are willing to try a heck of a lot harder than we think they are. And too often, we don't give them benefit of the doubt, and we don't talk to them in a way that changes their behavior, because you don't change anyone's behavior by telling them to go home and do something. That's that's the take-home message for my lectures these days, is it's not about the therapeutics. It's about how we talk to our patients. And ironically, if you tell a patient not to do something, that's the way they go, and that's when they go and do it. It's just, it's mind-boggling. And we think, and we keep saying, no, that can't be right. I need to practice the ethical tenet of veracity in the practice and always tell the patient the truth. Well, the truth is I want you to not go do this because psychologically I know then you're going to go do it. Well, then that brings me to two final points. Um, The dental community does not want you on Instagram. I put a pose. I put a post after our trip on a reels from our road trip up to Montreal and everybody wants you there. So I'm going to tell you not to join Instagram. Oh, so I was like, are you serious? Your- <laughs> Why would you say that to me live on See? a podcast? It totally works. You know what I just went in my head. You just told me nobody wants me. I just- You're like, so I'm going to get my ass on Instagram <laughs> because on Instagram. we want you there. <laughs> I don't want last thing I need is to be on social media. Pam. I got my pa- I'm working on my paper. You know, my paper. So I know the paper. I know. I read, it to you. I read it to you the whole way home from Montreal. I know. I heard the whole thing. It's so Were you good. driving, Pam? I was. Okay, then it had to be good, or you guys would have been in a ditch. No, no, not a ditch, not even close. It was an amazing paper, but- 22 pages on early childhood carries. I'm just saying your friends miss you on social media, so it'd be delightful if you would join us on Instagram, number one. Number two, the question everybody really wants to know, they literally sat here with us for this entire time. Did you get your phone back? I did get my phone back. Through a very weird circus. You were there, Pam. You were there and you're setting I'm just helping the people. They want to know. I can tell. They're Dr. like, Grace, did you hear the story of what happened? So what, how we got my phone back? Because I, I activated find my iPhone, but because my phone was in airplane mode, which you remember because it was in airplane mode and I text messaged my mother from the bar to say I'm safely in Montreal with Pam. Um, the, it, it pinged when it got back into the Wi-Fi range of the hotel. And I went running down the cab line asking each cab driver if they had my phone. And sure enough, I go up to this guy and it wasn't getting the missing text message says this phone has been lost. Please bring it back to the intercontinental hotel. Leave with the concierge, leave your contact information for a large Venmo reward. The guy didn't even see that. He had no idea because no, it wasn't getting any messages because it's in airplane mode. But then my phone pinged me that it was outside the hotel. So Pam and I go running out onto the streets of Montreal. I'm like, it's around here somewhere. And, um, She's like, where, Brian, your phone is gone. Can we, we need to go home. I have to practice tomorrow. I have patience tomorrow. I was like, my phone is here, Pam. My phone says it's here. So I just went down the whole line of cabs, knocking on windows. And sure enough, this guy who didn't look anything like the way I remembered him, and his cab was a different color than I remembered. But I said, do you have my phone? He goes, yeah. I was like, you have my phone? He goes, yeah. I was like, you have my phone? He goes, yeah. And he's looking around his car, rummaging through everything. And then he just hands me my phone. It's like, oh my God, it's my phone. Crazy, crazy, right? And if I hadn't been late to meet you, Pam, and I was like two and a half hours late to meet you to go home, we would have completely missed it because he wouldn't have been there at all with my phone. And we would have left and he would have driven up and been sitting there and I would have never pinged. So I'm telling you, the universe, that 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 trip to Montreal, it was an amazing trip. Oh, it was brought brought the three of us together in that restaurant for me mm-hmm. to lose my phone. <laughs> oh, wait a second. I wouldn't even <laughs> lost my phone if it weren't for you. True. So butterfly never mind. Effect. Never mind what I just said. It's your fault because you didn't check the back of the cab when we got out. <laughs> that was me. That was me. I'm sorry. Or as Pam said, we, you just let us take an Uber, but no, you had to hail a cab on the streets of Montreal. It happens. It, it happens. happens. It was Thank all. You. Man, this was awesome. I got my phone. <laughs>
I got my phone back. Montreal is a great place. Those cab drivers are awesome. Great city. Great people. Great episode. Pam, you want to take us home? Because I learned a lot. I actually made two pages of notes. No oh my gosh. kidding. I know. I always learn something when I oh hang out with you, Brian. Thank you so much. This was amazing. I appreciate your time. I know um, just to anticipate the invitation back because we're certainly going to want to have you back. So mwah, love you. Thank you. And everybody out there, we will see you next week. Thank you everyone for watching or listening to the show this week. And thanks to our guests and sponsors on this episode. Please check out our social media at Dr. Pamela underscore Maragliano and at Dental Economics Official. Or you can check me out at Ignite DDS or at Dr. David Rice. And go to dentaleconomics.com to receive dental economics. You can choose to receive DE in print or digitally, and you can also get the details of our Principles of Practice Management Conference on our website. If you have topics or guests or anything you'd like to talk about on the show, send us an email to dentistryunmaskedpodcast at gmail.com, and we will do our very best to make it happen. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.